Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and this is the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. On our show today, we're going to be discussing literary tourism. Why would you ever visit a grave of an author, a house of an author, the site where an author was bar mitzvahed? We will be discovering the answers to these questions. We are recording this show just a couple of days before the Oscars, which will have already aired by the time you hear this. And we happen to have in our studio our great friend, Leo Brody, who has written one of the most essential books on fame, if not the most essential ever written. It's called The Frenzy of Renown. We're going to talk about another issue regarding actors. Leo, do you want to say what's bothering you? Well, it's bothered me for a long time, actually, uh, and it's bothered other people as well. I'm not unique in this, but the way in which so many Best Actor and Best Actress Oscars are given to people who play people who are not like themselves. Often there are people who have physical disabilities of one sort or another, and this goes way back. Or else there are people who are famous. That is, they're impersonating people who are famous. And whereas the supporting actor and actress Oscars often go to somebody who in one scene or a group of scenes creates a real character that has heft, that grounds the story of what's going on, the best actor and best actress Oscars so often go to these kinds of roles there uh, where you're doing something that is basically different. I mean, that is, people understand Daniel Day-Lewis is not paralyzed. Eddie Redmayne is not like Stephen Hawking. I mean, there Eddie Redmayne is doing two things at once. He's imitating a disability and he's imitating a famous person. So just to be clear, you are against movies that depict people with handicaps. No, I'm just <laughs> so you say these are, these are more stunts in your view than performances? Well, I don't know if they're stunts. I mean, impersonation is, in fact, part of the history of acting. And it's important in that way. I would just, you know, in a crude way, say, look, there are two different kinds of acting, and often they overlap. But one, just to distinguish them, one is outside in, and the other is inside out. And outside in is the impersonation one. Inside out is more about creating a character in kind of an emotional situation. Once you do the outside in, once you look like, uh, let's say, uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher or Henry VIII or something like that, then maybe you can add a nuance of the inside out, too. But what appeals to the audience is the impersonation. What appears to the audience or the academy, since well, you're saying... Well, that's the question. But, but I do think that, you know, actors are great mimics. That's one of the ways you know you're going to be an actor when you're a kid. If you're great at mimicking people, you've got one of the skills you need to have as an actor. And they do love to show off, as we all do, their skills. But there are performances that combine both. For example, I'm thinking of Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta, mm-hmm. where he's playing a real guy, but it's a completely internal performance mm-hmm. and remarkably convincing. Mm-hmm. And he won an Oscar for that. But right. here's my yeah. question for you. Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles. As Ray Charles. Okay. Assess that performance. Is that an outside in performance? Is that an inside-out performance? Well, you know, that adds another factor. As the LaMotta example adds another factor, which is that they are, in fact, playing a public person, playing a person who is performing also. So that person has, you know, a double nature in terms of the story. That is, what are you like on stage? What are you like off stage? So both of them work together there. Was the animating spark of Ray Charles apparent in that performance for you? Yeah. Oh, I felt it was, yeah. For me as well. I thought he was amazing in that role. Well, yeah. a, lot of these, a lot of these things are amazing. I'm just pointing out a kind of interesting 
well, as Laurie was saying there, you know, is it the Academy? Because it does seem to me that many of these performances are very worthy. But then there's also this kind of very broad way in which the Academy, everybody in the Academy, you know, once the uh, actors branch creates the five nominees, then everybody votes. And I think to people who aren't actors, who aren't performers, playing somebody who is not yourself or playing somebody who has problems that you obviously don't have is considered to be real acting in quotation marks. There are two ways to look at it. You can go see the Beatles imitators and you can say they did a good job or they didn't do a good job. But then there are these performances. The two that come to mind for me are Audra McDonald playing Billie Holiday, which was on stage. And the other one is Judy Davis playing Judy Garland on TV. Those were performances that did so much more than imitate. They told you everything that was going on internally with the performer as they were also performing pitch-perfect imitations. So, you know, it's a question of quality. Well, I think, you know, sort of an emblematic situation a few years ago when uh, basically, uh, you know, Meryl Streep as Margaret Thatcher faced off against Michelle Williams as Marilyn Monroe. And Michelle Williams's performances was, she didn't look very much like Marilyn Monroe, but it was much more, she gave you the essence of Marilyn Monroe, whereas... Meryl Streep as Margaret Thatcher was much more the kind of external impersonating performance that I was talking about. Nadie comprende lo que sufro yo. Well, we know that you are not a great fan of Meryl Streep's work. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, I think she does great things, but it seems to me she's drawn to these kind of roles. Uh, and, you know, my, my basic Meryl Streep problem is it always seems to me when she's doing these things, when she's doing someone with a strange accent or when she's doing somebody uh, who is a familiar person, there's a kind of frame around her performance that says, look, I'm doing a really great job at this. Look, I can really do this, this accent. Look, I can look like Margaret Thatcher. I mean, there's a kind of ostensiveness about it that seems to me is, is not good. I mean, there's some roles in which she really does submerge herself, but she hasn't really done that for a while. What's astonishing to me about her is that she can do virtually everything. Because to just push back a little bit, the thing that I think of to uh, counter the Thatcher example is in Angels in America, the version that Mike Nichols directed mm-hmm. for HBO a few years back, there was an old Jewish man who had a very small role. And at the end... As the credits rolled, I was astonished to learn that that old Jewish man was Meryl Streep. Well, I think it wasn't that, a small role. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's it's interesting, and there's a chameleon-like quality there that's that's really fascinating, and just to be able to do those kinds of things. But on the other hand, it's getting it's like a shtick almost. It's getting to be too much of a Well, she's, she has such an astonishing ability. It's almost as if she's bored, so she just has to try things she hasn't done. I think you see that with certain musicians who reach a level of virtuosity that they become tired of their instrument. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that her technique is so unbelievably advanced and evolved that sometimes you feel like you're just seeing the technique, but she can't help but show that off. Mm-hmm. But this division between inside out and outside in, of course, goes back a long way to Stanislavski, um, you know, finding the internal truth of the characters rather than the external truth. I sure. mean, this is a long division in schools of acting. Yeah, and, you know, and certainly method acting, you know, after World War II when you kind of the growth of the actor's studio and things like that. Let's, uh, let's circle back to Daniel Day-Lewis for a second. Okay. You mentioned him earlier. You referenced, I think, My Left Foot, my left with, foot. when he played Christy Brown, a role right. for which I believe he won an Oscar. Mm-hmm. When he played Lincoln, this, this to me is a fascinating case because Lincoln is a public figure who we are all intimately familiar with, but none of us saw 
in person. None of us heard his voice. And Daniel Day-Lewis created that character. And for a lot of us, we think that was was Lincoln. Now, I'm very curious to get your take on that performance, whether that was an external performance, whether it was an internal performance, whether it was both, whether it was successful for you. Well, I think, you know, he's because, because he can do both at the same time. And I think we have to talk about the whole movie, too. That is, is the movie trying to show his internal nature as well? Is the script trying to show his internal nature at the same time? And of course, any time you're going to do a public figure, I mean, you have to do that. Otherwise, you're not just going to show the public figure in public all the time. You're not just going to show the figure in, as far as the image that we've received. You know, you want to kind of dig into it. What, you know, what's his relationship to his wife? You know, what, was he really anguished? What made him decide about the Emancipation Proclamation and things like that? I, you know, I have trouble with Lincoln as a movie because of the way the movie itself is structured because it seems to me that it should have ended when he's walking down the hallway and that's it. And so we have that sense of solitude with him because really that's what the, the movie is about to show you the internal Lincoln there. But instead we have to have the death scene, you know, and the death scene, of course, you know, is, is in a public place, it's in a theater. So it has to be, it's theatricalized in some way. So, I mean, the kind of balance between the internal and the external there, it seems to me is thrown off by the movie. I think that I, would be very un-Spielberg-like. I think, I mean, he really likes to give you every, you know, food group on the menu he doesn't restrain himself particularly. Yeah, and I think he also, uh, in, often in his movies, you know, underlines things so much. He, he wants you to feel the right thing, and so he has characters within the scene telling you how to feel about what the scene is doing. That was particularly offensive, I thought, with Schindler's List, which I thought was a movie made for people who didn't know anything about the Holocaust, which I just found offensive, just de facto offensive. Well, he's a, he's a popular artist, so he feels that he needs to be tendentious, I think, to a certain degree, and uh, that's his role as he sees it. Yeah, I mean, his heroes frequently, even the Indiana Jones films, you know, Indy is doing something heroic. He doesn't do it alone. He does it in front of a crowd, all these people saying, oh, Indy, don't do that, or do that, or whatever it is. You know, there has to be an, an internal audience that lets the external audience know how to feel. In all of the performances given by actors where they're portraying real people, is there any way when they're portraying someone who's alive that a Madame Tussauds quality can be avoided? Leo, I'd, I'd like to end on asking you that question. Is there some way this can be circumscribed by actors who've leapt into these roles? I think, well, you know, obviously not makeup and things like that, too. But I think, you know, there always is a Madame Tussaud quality about it. I think, you know, going back to, you know, to George Arliss as Disraeli way back when in Academy Awards there. I mean, you, he, I mean, he spent all this time wanting to look exactly like Disraeli. That is, there's a, it's a problem of the relationship, you know, about inside out and outside in, as I was talking about before, but it's also about in authenticity and inauthenticity. If you're going to be a famous person, a familiar person, imagistically familiar person, visually familiar person, you want to look like that person to a great extent. Now, something like Michelle Williams, you know, being Marilyn Monroe, but from the inside out and looking vaguely blonde, well, of course, blonde, et cetera, there. I mean, that's that's a different kind of ideal for acting. That is, I am, I am becoming the real person rather than I'm becoming the person that you know visually. So would you say on some level, the literalness of film ultimately dooms all of these performances? The literalness of films, the realistic, the idea that you may be watching something real is something that, that films has to deal with all the time in a lot of different ways. And that's, and that's part of it. That is, people go, I want to see somebody who actually looks like Henry VIII. 
Does Laura, does that argue for the ultimate supremacy of theater as an art form? Of course. <laughs> this is the LARB Radio Hour brought to you by the LA Review of Books. There's a piece in the LA Review of Books right now called On the New Literary Tourism by Jeff Benedek about how people travel to the homes or the graves of writers to commune with the the usually dead, although sometimes living, authors. And joining us to discuss this phenomenon is the author Judith Freeman, who has written a book called The Long Embrace. Judith, when was that published? 2007. And The Long Embrace is about Raymond Chandler and Los Angeles. Right. What was it you expected to find about Chandler by visiting every single place he ever lived in Los Angeles, which I think, by the way, is an Olympian feat? Yeah. Do, how, do you know how many? Do you have a number? Of well, it's a huge number. It, it, I started out identifying about 30 places where he'd lived. But in the years since the book is published, I keep coming across more addresses. It's wow. like they're multiplying. So I figure now that Chandler moved maybe 40 times in and around L.A., uh, living literally all over the map. Can you explain to our listeners why he moved so much? I think there are probably several reasons. He wrote a letter to Somerset Mom at the end of his life, and which he said, you know, basically I'm a gypsy at heart. I constantly need new vistas to stimulate my imagination. And I think that was part of it. I also think he was just a restless, cranky guy. He would always find something to complain about, the neighbors, the noise, the air, the neighborhood. He had moved with his mother when he was young so many times that I think he had no sense of of home in the way a lot of people do, that it's a place. For him, home was his wife and his cat. And when he moved to L.A. in 1912, he loved automobiles. And I think he moved because he could, because he was in this place where suddenly mobility was a big part of how people lived. And if you had a car, you could go to Big Bear for the winter or the summer, and you could go to Palm Springs, and you could, if you didn't like an apartment, you could move in three months. And I think it was just part of what L.A. offered him. And why did his mother move so often? Well, he was born in Chicago, and, you know, his father was an alcoholic and a womanizer, and he left the family when Chandler was seven, and he never saw him again, never mentioned him in any letter. And his mother, who was Irish-English, took him back to first Ireland and then London, and his uncle owned real estate, and he would give him an apartment to live in. And then when the apartment rented, they would have to move someplace else. And then after Chandler came back to America in 1912, he sent for his mother. He knew that he'd be responsible for the rest of his life. So I think that uncle owning apartments and moving him around, being born in America and then going to London, then coming back to L.A. just when it was actually becoming a modern city, that um, he had no sense of of rootedness. He was a man of two countries, two languages, um, 
two sensibilities. Had you ever been drawn to the geography of a writer like this prior to Chandler? No, and the reason I was drawn to him is in the 1980s when I started reading him, I read his letters, and I started making a list of the addresses at the tops of the letters because they were constantly changing. And I thought, wow, one day maybe I'll, I'll write a book and I'll track down every place where Chandler ever lived and, and see what I find. I mean, I, I really don't know that anyone has gotten L.A. the way Chandler got L.A. And I thought, what could I discover? What would I find out by going to all these places where he lived? What would the connections be with the fiction, with his life, with what was going on? Is there ever any kind of mystical connection that you feel going to a place where he lived? Yeah, well, I can easily sort of go to woo-woo. But the truth is, I feel Chandler a lot when I'm driving around the city, especially in my neighborhood around MacArthur Park, which is where he started out, and along Franklin Avenue, which is where so many of his stories and and novels have scenes or settings. But yes, when I pulled up in front of one of his residents, and in my own way, you know, would be doing surveillance, I did connect with him. But I think the place I connected most strongly was the house he eventually bought in La Jolla, where I spent a lot of time and did some filming and It was just before the house was completely transformed. So I could walk into his study. I could see the bookcases that were still there. Parts of that house weren't changed at all. You could sit at the desk, and you could look out at the courtyard. And yes, there, I really did get a a very strong feeling. You approach this as somebody with a real strong literary interest. Do you go to other birthplaces when you're traveling? Do you go to see other authors? And, and why do you think people do that? You, you have your specific reasons as a writer who's interested in Chandler. Well, I haven't done that a lot, but I must say when I was in Paris last year, a friend who lives in Paris took me to Balzac's house. Wow, was that ever a great experience? Because Balzac's desk is there, the room in which he would spend all night writing, his garden. It's not a grand house. It was toward the end of his life. Thrilling experience going to Balzac's house. In L.A., for whatever reason, we don't honor our writers. It's a transient place. It's a strange place. It's constantly overturning and changing and reinventing. And But the only place where you can find any... any uh, reference to Chandler, where he's really honored in a geographical sense, is Philip Marlowe's fictional office, which was supposed to be at the, in a building at the corner of Cahuenga and Hollywood Boulevard. That has been renamed Raymond Chandler Square. And I think it's so perfect in L.A. that it's the fictional character who gets the plaque on the house and not the actual writer. It is as though L.A. is playing itself. Your eyes. This is the LARB Radio Hour brought to you by the L.A. Review of Books. Forgetful of a promise of love, you're sharing another's child. There is something about writers' residences for those of us who are drawn to this life, for those of us who 
become writers, I've noticed that everybody has a story. Tom, earlier you were telling a story about going to Tolstoy's house and finding clothes the day you got there. I remember on my honeymoon, I was in Rivallo, Italy with my wife, coincidentally. <laughs> and and we, we climbed the fence at Gore Vidal's house in Rivallo. We were, we were much younger at the time. I'm not sure we could do it today. But we were, we were drawn to that house because he lived there. at the. I think he was in Los Angeles at the time, ironically, while we were there. But there is a magnetic quality that these homes have. And in your book, The Long Embrace, you really are the, uh, the Odysseus of this genre. I think Paris does it well, certainly does it better than Los Angeles. We went to see where Proust lived. I think it's 101 Houseman. His apartment is not there, however. It's in the Carnavalet Museum. I mean, his room is recreated with the bed and mm. the table. And the, and also, I remember one time we were in Freud's study. Tom was speaking at the Freud Museum, and we could stand at Freud's desk. His glasses were on the desk. And the feeling that you get, I think it's kind of like religious relic kind of material, you know, getting close to the bodily. It's very Catholic, that, that whole idea. <laughs> I don't feel it at all, really. I mean, I was thrilled to be in Freud's library because I could, we could pull books off his shelf and see his, his marginalia. And there were mm. biographies of Freud already out while he was alive. And in the margins of those biographies, he was writing, false. <laughs> Nine, you know, with breaking the pencil point, so angry at the bios. So that was interesting for me as a yeah. as a scholar. But I didn't feel a kind of religious impulse at all. Or well, when I was younger, I went to. I remember going to London and going to all of Virginia Woolf's houses. She had three residences in London, as I I remember it, and just sitting there silently, reverently, you know, by myself in front of her house, and it was just my way of kind of paying tribute to her. I don't know. Sentimental, I, I guess. I wonder if we don't also have some subconscious idea that we might absorb some of that mojo, you mm -hmm. know, as writers. Oh, that absolutely. There we are, you know, near Balzac's desk. I'm a writer. He was a writer. Well, and also, in a way, there's a sacred element to it in that we do feel that this is our religion on some level literature and writing and this thing to which we've dedicated our life. So when we go to these sites, these, you know, quote unquote, holy sites, okay. there is a somewhat spiritual feeling, I think, that can occur. And I don't mean in a woo-woo way, yeah. but in that you're just, you're paying your respects to the, your ancestors and uh, as you would your actual biological ones, in a sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's something about the mystery of creation. I remember visiting Dickens' house, and they have Nicholas Nickleby under glass, the handwritten, he wrote it by hand, obviously, but, you know, the huge chunks written in the margins and cut out, and and just seeing the raw material like that, it, it did give me an out-of-body experience. And it's, it's really inspiring, because you see they're human, and they... You know, like they struggled. <laughs> they struggled, exactly. I was at uh, Hemingway's house in Cuba, and he, on his bathroom wall... He had recorded his weight every day for months and months and months. Oh, it's like down, Bridget Jones' diary. Down to the half pound. You know, it varied from 180 to 201. It was like, it wasn't like there were huge fluctuations. Just like every single day in this weird, weird scrawl down the it's wall. So girly. And, uh, and why? <laughs> and yeah. But the, again, no reverence. I mean, I, I go to, you go to a cathedral. And you can appreciate what it meant to people at the time, and you can appreciate something about history and art, but you don't, I, I don't feel like I'm in Jesus's house. Well, what about at grave sites? Do you feel any differently at grave sites? 
No, they're interesting. It's interesting to see who goes to Jim Morrison, who goes to Oscar Wilde, who goes to the different graves in Père Lachaise, but, uh, and what they leave on them. But the graves themselves, no. Uh, we were in Montparnasse last year, and we visited Susan Sontag's grave. She wanted to be buried in Paris, but there was something so lonely. Like, you could just see that no one visited it, you know? And I wondered how um, Annie Leibowitz felt about it, that she couldn't visit the grave Annie Leibovitz probably travels. She she probably gets to visit it once in a while. Maybe. But. Remember how she went broke in the in the nineties, though. Oh, Maybe. I forget that. Yeah. <laughs> but I was thinking of visiting Hemingway's house in Sun Valley, Idaho, and I actually went there in the nineteen seventies. First, when Mary, his wife, was still alive, and I interviewed Mary, sitting in the living room in front of the foyer on the front door where Hemingway had killed himself with a shotgun. That was a very eerie experience because it's like visiting both the writer's house and the grave. But even more than the grave, it's the side of the death and how he killed himself was so upsetting and shocking. But Mary Hemingway is quite chipper. We, I arrived at 11 in the morning and she said, I think we should have some champagne, don't you? And I was there to interview her about her favorite big game recipe for the local paper, one of celebrities' big game recipes, and hers turned out to be bear gut stew, which is just astonishing. Like everyone has this in their refrigerator. But later, the Sun Valley Writers' Conference would open every conference at his house, and it's frozen in time. It's still frozen in time. All the magazines, when you walk in, are from 1963 or 61, the year that he killed himself. Nothing in the house has been changed. Still a few dead animal heads on the wall. Upstairs, the bedroom with red carpeting. So, you know, that was more than just visiting a house. That was really... Uh, kind of a profound feeling in that house. That reminds me of how celebrities always keep the same hairstyle that they had at the height of their fame, no matter how old they get, like Ginger Rogers, Keely Smith, Jackson uh-huh. Brown. They, they, It's just strange. You know, it's... <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> not sure what we can do with that. But... <laughs> <laughs> what, what was Tolstoy, Tolstoy's hairdo? Um, yeah, he looked great in the 1870s. <laughs> <laughs> stuck with that That one. was his decade. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Judith Freeman. Thanks to Leo Brody, our producer Jerry Gorham, and to the Goldhirsch Foundation for their generous support of the LARB Radio Hour. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Find us on the web, lareviewofbooks.org. We will see you next week. What romantic fool would notice me?